the last word on Today FM with Matt Cooper. Now it's time for the Culture Club. And are you familiar with the Dublin City Council, Dublin City Libraries initiative, One Dublin, One Book? It aims to encourage everyone in Dublin to read a designated book connected with the capital city during April every year. And this year's choice is a book which proved to be highly popular when it was published last year. It's called Leonard and Hungry Paul. So we've asked the novelist, Ronan Hessian, to join us here on the programme. Ronan, thank you very much for joining us here on the Culture Club and the Last Word in Say FM. Tell us a little bit about your book, Leonard and Hungry Paul, and what it is about Dublin that meant it's been picked for the One Dublin, One Book project. Hi, Matt, and, and thanks for having me on. Yeah, Leonard and Hungry Paul is a novel about gentle people. It looks at uh, two guys in their early 30s, Leonard, who's a ghostwriter of children's encyclopedias, uh, and his mother passes away in, in page two and a half, so it's not quite a spoiler. And that sets off a sort of chain of events where he has to sort of find his way in the world. Uh, and part of that is his good friend, Hungry Paul, who's a very idiosyncratic sort of character uh, and who's very self-contained. And they have a very gentle friendship. They play board games uh, and they're both people who have real sort of sincerity, but a quiet wisdom to them. And that's really about people who are trying to engage with the outside world without becoming overwhelmed by it. So it was, I first started talking to Dublin City Council about this uh, some time ago when uh, they told me it had been selected for One Dublin, One Book, which is a really great honour. And I think they they felt I'm from Dublin. I've lived in Dublin all my life and uh, I have very great connection to the city. And I think they felt that the times we're in, that a sort of quiet book that nevertheless had a sort of hopeful side to it or a positive side to it was the right book for the times we're in. That sounds very much though a book about people and relationships. So how closely set in Dublin is it? How recognisable is the Dublin in it? Well, it's it's not specifically set in Dublin. It's not specifically set anywhere. So it's 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 written to try and feel like it's not far from here and now, wherever the reader is. But there, I think there's certainly what comes through is you know there are recognisable aspects of Dublin to it. I think it's sort of. It sort of, I think, matches a lot of my own experience of Dublin, which is that it's it's big enough to feel like you're sort of invisible at times, but small enough that you can have your own version of it. Although, and as we, when we get to the Culture Club choices, your choices are very definitely international from all over the world. You take in culture, it seems you suck it up from anywhere you can find it. Oh, very much so. And, I, and I've always loved that about the my sort of creative interests. I read, I read mostly translated fiction, I would say, you know, 95% of the world's population is in countries where English is not the first language. So I try and read quite broadly uh, across the world. Uh, and also, I think in terms of my interest in, in movies, my interest in music, I've never really stuck particularly to Irish or sort of Anglophone world. Uh, and I think I'm not sure why that is exactly, I, perhaps because when I was younger, I didn't travel much. I don't think I was on an aeroplane until I was 21. So I think perhaps I'm I'm overcompensating by trying to soak up some of the world. And especially now, I suppose that we can't travel. It's great to have that sense of being transported through fiction or through creative works. And of course, there are people who won't know you as Ronan Hessian. They'll know you as mumbling deaf row. Tell us a little bit about that alter ego of yours. Yeah, so I was involved in the music scene for quite a long time, from sort of the early 90s up until about 10 years ago. 
and I was involved in various music collectives and running music, but but I also released my own music. So I released three albums under the name Mumbling Death Row. Uh, the last one was nominated for the Choice Music Prize. And where the name comes from, odd though it is, is is really, I was fell deeply in love, I think, with acoustic blues music. Uh, and one of the guitarists in the band I played with, because I was enjoying people like uh, Blind Lemon Jefferson and Blind Boy Fuller and people like that christened me uh, Mumbling Death Row as my sort of blues name. So that still <laughs> remains my moniker in terms of social media and so on, although it causes much puzzlement. And that Choice Music Prize nominated album, Dictionary Crimes, how would you describe the music in it? The music is is sort of, it's sort of rich enough sort of finger picking music. It's built largely around intertwining finger-picking guitar styles. There's quite gentle percussion on it. Uh, and that album, this sort of trademark on that album really is talking about family life. At that stage, I wrote it when my children were quite young. My mother had died a few years before, and I was really trying to come to terms with the sort of pressures of, you know, having a young family, the, the generations changing, work pressure, etc. So it was it was a, a slice of life, really. And, and the music was really a sort of, an accompaniment to that and very integrated with it. Okay, well, let's move to your favourite album. I'll get back to your f- earliest influences in a little while. But just with that in mind, you've nominated Johan Johannesson as uh, the person behind your favourite album, IBM 1401, a user's manual. Tell us about this. So, so this is probably an, un- an unlikely choice uh, in terms of a favourite album, but in truth, it's probably the album I've listened to more than any other over the last sort of five or ten years or so. And it's quite an unusual album in that it has a, a very sort of tender, sort of a quite melancholy acoustic, uh, sorry, uh, orchestral settings. And played over that is a recording of the user's manual for a very early sort of card type computer, the IBM 1401. And Johan Johansson's father had been involved in, I think, the design or manufacture of that early computer. So you have this kind of slightly eerie uh, effect of quite swelling, beautiful string sections, and then sort of very sort of clipped BBC type voice telling you that you need to atomize the fluid over the moving parts of this this kind of very archaic sounding computer. And I don't know why, but actually a lot of albums I've liked over the years have that mix of recorded voice um, and uh, and music. It's something, there's some, some, some feeling of the sort of sad robot feel about it that I think just appeals to me. I want to hear this now. I want to hear a bit of the sun's gone dim and the sky's turned black.
sort of thing I can imagine Radiohead maybe doing at some stage. Yeah, it's got that intensity. It really sends the shivers down your shivers down your hard drive when you hear it. Uh, it's got that yeah, just that beautiful full sound. Uh, but it's also got parts that are actually very sparse on it as well. The composer himself was is Icelandic. He actually died a couple of years ago. Um, but so it has that wonderful sort of sweeping sort of feel to it. Uh, it really is quite different and it, it really is a very powerful uh, collection of songs. Okay, it's very interesting. It's very different to anything we've had on the Culture Club before. And indeed, I have to admit, I am not familiar with any of the favourite bands or artists that you nominated. So tell us about your choices, please. Okay, well, the, the my favourite band uh, uh, who's also a, a solo performer is the many incarnations of uh, Mark Kozilek. Uh, Mark Kozilek is a songwriter from Ohio uh, and he's he formed a band called Red House Painters in the early 1990s, a band really out of San Francisco. And they were very known for extremely slow, quite dark and very sort of soft, sort of vulnerable sort of type songs. Uh, and they released a few albums, sort of cult favourites, really. Um, and after that, he had other incarnations as Sun Kill Moon. And later on in his career, really the last 10 years, he sort of changed his personality, which, which you don't often see uh, musicians doing. His stuff was always quite, is very sort of heartbreaking and sad and moving. And then in the last number of albums, and he's releasing about at least one album a year for the last five or six years, sometimes two albums a year, he's moved to a much more observational, very humorous, grumpy middle-aged man style uh, type of delivery, where he's talking about, you know, what it's like to have a beer gut and what it's like to not be able to buy uh, a Mike Tyson biography when you go into a trendy bookstore in San Francisco, not being able to find, a, uh, you know, an outlet of Panera bread. So it is very sort of freestyle sort of lyrics. And he sort of transformed himself as an artist and actually has become much better known, uh, certainly in the US, as a result. But at this stage, he probably has almost 20 albums or thereabouts. Uh, and he's he's a, he's a major figure. I, th I think personality-wise, he's supposed to be quite a difficult person. But he, he there's great humour in his, in his music, which was completely di different from what he did in the early part of his career. So, so a really interesting artist who continues to evolve and is always worth paying attention to. Okay, the track we have a clip from is called Ben's My Friend and this is him in the Sun Kill Moon mode. I woke up this morning August 3rd It's been a pretty slow and uneventful summer Went to visit a friend in Santa Fe Went to New Orleans and went to see my family Woke up this morning track to finish up but I was feeling out of fuel and uninspired laid in my bed too long a little down a little tired met my girl and we walked down Union Street I was scattered and my head was in a bunch of places bought a $350 pair of lampshades and we ate at berries and I ordered crab cakes blue crab cakes blue crab And asked what was going on with me. I said I can't explain it. It's a middle-aged thing. She said okay. 
Sun Kill Moon, very interesting sounding. That track is called Ben's My Friend. Uh, Ronan Hessian is with us today for the Culture Club. And move on, please, to the best gig that you can remember being at. Well, I think the, the, my, my choice for that is, uh, I don't know if, if gig is the right word, but the best musical performance was uh, of a classical piece called uh, The Requiem by Gabriel Fari, who's a, a French composer. And it's a beautiful, sublime uh, piece of sort of choral music that was written really in tribute to the passing of his parents and particularly his mother. Uh, and I remember when my own mother passed away in 2007, or when she was very close to the end, I think it was actually, and we knew it was the end. I, I saw the piece, I've only ever seen it twice in my life, and it was both in the same week. It was performed in Merchant's Key Church in Dublin by Piccolo Lasso, Lasso who are a sort of a youth choir, a, a very sort of celebrated youth choir in, in Dublin. And then I saw it within the same week in the Newman Chapel, which is the Cardinal Newman Chapel. It's on St. Stephen's Green, a beautiful little chapel that's sort of below ground level. And it is a sublime piece of music, uh, divine sounding. And it, it really is... To, to my mind, the sort of soundtrack of that sort of period and the the sort of the mix of the uh, the sort of grief I was going through, but also the sort of the wash of of love that you feel sometimes when someone you care about is, is passing away. Let's hear a little bit of In Paradisum. Okay, piece of music that has great personal meaning to you. Uh, Ronan, we also ask everybody who comes on the Culture Club to nominate the first piece of music they can ever remember buying, usually a single, depending on their age. But you're very much a cassette era person. So what's the first thing that you think you might have bought? Well, well, just as, as Faray was writing about heaven and people going to heaven, it, it was obviously an early theme in my my music purchases because I think the first single I bought was Heaven is a Place on Earth by Belinda Carlisle a different Very type different. of artist I think <laughs> Very <laughs> different but similar themes similar themes yeah I, I think when I was first started buying music I w- it would have been sort of 1987 88 and cassette singles I'm not sure where the cassette singles were really took off in the same way that even downloads do now for individual songs or, or sort of vinyl, sort of seven inches where. So I would have bought it probably because, uh, well, first of all, I liked the song. Probably I was interested in Belinda Carlisle. Uh, and I'm sure it was probably in a a, a bargain 
basket in golden discs in the local uh, shopping centre. So I would have bought it and I haven't, I don't know if I still have it, but I, I'm almost sure that the B-sides were just alternative versions of the same song, which in the 80s was <laughs> quite commercial singles. So you would buy the same song, they would speed up the drum beat for the second version, they would take off the drums for the third version, and in the final version they would just try and ruin it. Let's hear a little bit of Belinda Carlisle's Heaven is a Place on Earth. Books is the reason that we brought you on today. Uh, tell us a little bit about your own favourite book and author, please. I think my my, my favourite author, and, and that's something that sort of changes all the time, but one writer I just keep coming back to, particularly in the last number of years, and I think I, I enjoy everything about her books, is the Japanese writer, Banana Yoshimoto. Um, she, she's, she kind of came to sort of fame early in her career. And she was about 2021 with her debut called Kitchen. Uh, which is a beautiful novel about uh, family, about grief, uh, and about, you know, about Japan and her life in Japan. Uh, and she's written countless novels, only a fraction of which have been translated. Uh, so I think she's the writer. I, she has something very unusual about her, which is that a recurring theme she has is about young people who've been sort of scarred through by grief in, in their younger years and how they carry that through uh, into adulthood. And she has this sort of cheerful sadness to her. She's a very non-judgmental writer. She never really kind of makes her characters look bad. And she always has some very surprising insights about life. And there's a very fresh, sort of zesty sort of style to her writing. So, so Banana Yoshimoto is a writer that I, that I love very much. Um, in terms of an individual book, I think when I look back over the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, the book that probably stands out to me is A Fine Balance, written by Rohanton Mystery. Rohanton Mystery is a Canadian writer. He's of, of Indian, uh, you know, sort of ethnicity. And he writes so brilliantly about India. He's only written three novels. He's the only author where all of his novels have been shortlisted for the Booker Prize. Uh, and he hasn't written anything since about 2002. I don't know why but he's much missed and a fine balance is a masterpiece written shortly after uh, or set, I should say, 
shortly after Indian independence uh, and just goes through the life of the people on the streets uh, in, in, in you know, sort of the poorest parts of India, both in rural and, and in urban settings, and shows the sort of change in the country. And it does that thing, which I think the novel is a brilliant form for, which is showing the sort of plight of the individual, the plight of society, and then showing the plight of the individual in society. We have a clip from the audiobook of A Fine Balance. Dina's father had been a doctor, a GP with a modest practice who followed the Hippocratic Oath somewhat more passionately than others of his profession. During the early years of Dr. Shroff's career, his devotion to his work was diagnosed by peers, family members and senior physicians as typical of youthful zeal and vigour. How refreshing! This enthusiasm of the young, they smiled, nodding sagely, confident that time would douse the fires of idealism with a healthy dose of cynicism and family responsibilities. But marriage and the arrival of a son, followed 11 years later by a daughter, changed nothing for Dr. Shroff. Time only sharpened the imbalance between his fervor to ease suffering and his desire to earn a comfortable income. How disappointing, said friends and relatives, shaking their heads. Such high hopes we had for him. And he keeps slaving like a clerk, like a fanatic, refusing to enjoy life. Poor Mrs. Shroff. Never a vacation, never a party. No fun at all in her existence. Okay, let's move on. What's your favourite movie selection, please, Ronan? Uh, my favorite movie, uh, that's an easy one, uh, The Goodbye Girl, which is the 1977 movie uh, where the screenplay is written by Neil Simon, the, the famous playwright. Uh, and it has a brilliant cast. And the center, center to it is the relationship between Richard Dreyfus uh, and Marsha Mason. So Richard Dreyfus is, a, is an actor who's come to play an, in an off-Broadway play to play a, a gay version of Richard III, which he's very nervous about. Uh, and he ends up having to sublet an apartment and stay with Marsha Mason, whose husband has just left and who's friends with Richard Dreyfuss' character. And the whole story plays out about their sort of unlikely relationship, including Marsha Mason has, has a daughter. So there's a great chemistry between the, the, the three uh, main uh, actors in the movie. And it, to me, it's the best romantic comedy that's ever been made. Let's hear a scene from The Goodbye Girl. Who is it? Very funny. May I come in? Doors open. Are you decent? I am decent. Do you realize it is three o'clock in the morning and my daughter... Jesus Christ, you're naked. I thought you said you were decent. I am decent. I also happen to be naked. Mr. Garfield, I have a growing daughter inside who is not going to grow on two hours of sleep a night. Do you have to play that thing at this hour? I told you it helps me to fall asleep. Have you ever tried pills? I don't know how to play pills. It's not hard. You pop them in your mouth and swallow. Miss McFadden, I am a person of health. I do not put unnatural things in my body. Music is one of nature's sedatives. If you would just listen to it instead of fighting it, we would all be asleep in five minutes. However, if you insist, take two sleeping pills and stick one in each ear. La da da da. The goodbye girl. Uh, we asked you to nominate a play or a musical, theatre show. You didn't have many to offer us. 
No, I have to say I'm not a musical fan. I'll be honest with you. It's it's probably uh, the biggest sticking point in my marriage. I have to say that my, my wife likes musical theatre and I, I struggle with it. I don't go to the theatre that often. I'm not sure why. Uh, so I suggested uh, quite boringly, I suppose, a writer's choice, which is Endgame, the Samuel Beckett play. I saw it in The Gate a number of years ago, very impressively sort of staged, uh, a very sort of memorable sort of play in its sort of darkness and strangeness. I'd, I'd read Beckett's novels when I was younger uh, without really knowing what they were and, and without fully understanding them, I'd say. So it was the first time I'd seen one of his plays uh, and I think the sort of atmosphere of it, I can sort of see its influence and I can see his influence. But yeah, you're right, I'm not a big theatre goer um, and it doesn't look like I'll have a chance to, to do that much uh, in the next short while to, to rectify that. But I'm always open to suggestion. You don't watch much television either, do you? I don't. Well, you have to bear in mind, I, I have a sort of full-time day job. I have kids and I write books. So yes. my, my free time is, uh, my, my writing day starts at 10 p.m. at night until midnight. So it's either write books or watch TV. Uh, so I, I don't watch uh, much TV. Uh, I, I actually got to the stage where I think I need to watch more of it just to unwind. I can't be so productive and serious the whole time. But yeah, my, my the TV shows um, I tend to watch tend to be, like I, I like, again, you mentioned I like international uh, sort of creativity. So I, I really enjoy Midnight Diner, which is a Netflix series set in Japan. Uh, and I also like Bonus Family, which is a story about uh, a number of couples uh, where they have broken up and they started a new family. So for the children, it's considered a bonus family. So they're a member of two different households. So it's a, it's a beautiful uh, and very well-written uh, series looking at sort of relationships and all the complexity of that. Okay, but you do have time for podcasts, I believe. Yeah, I, I do. I, I like to, uh, I try to get, you know, I try to exercise more and trying to get out more. So I like to bring podcasts with me. So my, my favorite sort of literary podcast is, is Backlisted, which is a, a brilliant podcast done by, done by Andy Miller and John Mitchison, where they try and rediscover forgotten classics. Uh, so they will take a book that was published usually in the first half of the 20th century and they will sort of try and bring it back to life. Books who have sort of fallen out of the, the their reputation, sort of fallen out of fashion or that they're just overlooked. There are so many great books that just don't get carried through generation to generation and they're trying to rediscover those. Uh, and I'm also a, a keen Wofford fan, so I'm a football fan, so I listen to the Writing is the best uh, Wofford podcast called uh, From the Rookery End. Hold on, it, a it's, Watford it's not... fan? There aren't many Watford fans around. Is this from the Graham Taylor, Elton John era where they got to the cup final against Everton in 84? That's right, yeah. So so it's, let me be a salutary lesson to any children out there who are picking teams <laughs> that are doing well right now. Be prepared to stick it through for 30 years. But uh, it's nice being a Watford fan because every time they do well, I get texts from people because I'm the only Watford fan they know. So, yeah, I'd go over a few times a year. Obviously, they're not they're not playing in front of a crowd at the moment. But, yeah, no, I've been a Watford fan and uh, I was over um, when they were in Wembley uh, for the FA Cup final and the semi-final. And uh, I, I saw them when they were, I'd go over it two or three times a year. And uh, I, I, it's, it's actually easier now to follow Watford than it ever was. In the 90s, I could only follow them on CFAX. You know, because they weren't on. <laughs> yes. There was no online way to watch them. So all you were able to do was to watch this, the page slowly turning from page one of 18 down to page 
whatever the W's were, 17 or 18, and you'd, you'd eventually sort of get the result. So, uh, yeah, I'm a Watford fan, and these days with podcasts and live streaming of all the matches, it's probably easier to follow them than ever. And they're doing very well. They're, they're, they're in real danger of being promoted back to the Premier League. Which is scary. And obviously your football, that explains why the title of your next novel coming out, Panenka, which is the sort of the famous Panenka penalty, is it? Yeah, that's right. So so Panenka is coming out at the end of May uh, and it's a novel. Uh, the character Panenka in it is a 50-year-old man uh, who's living with his recently reconciled daughter uh, and he's a former footballer. Uh, and a lot of his sort of adult life has been spent um, coming to terms with mistakes he made as a younger man, both in his life and in his relationships. Uh, and it's a platonic love story. It's a story about how people who carry a lot of sadness and pain in their lives, how do they find a path through that? How do they come to terms with life's unfixability? We'll get to that when it comes out in May. But the recommendation for the month of April for the One Dublin One book is Leonard and Hungry Paul. Ronan Hessian, thank you very much for joining us here on The Last Word at Today FM. It's been great getting all of your choices, which have been so different to most of the choices that we've had since we began this part of The Last Word a couple of years ago. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Listen live on air from 4.30 weekdays on Today FM.